Ephesians chapter 6, we're studying the whole armor of God. Are you wearing your armor? I have the first point for you right off of the get-go, right from the start. And this whole thing is about the armor of God, but it's pointed in this direction, point number one. Are you a victorious Christian? This is not a passage about how to become a Christian. Listen and look and read. It is a passage about how to be a victorious Christian. How to be a believer that conquers in the strength of God. If we do not put on the whole armor, that means every piece of it, there will be a whole lot of damage, a whole lot of heartache, a lot of destruction, because sin is a schoolmaster, right? It's, the law is a schoolmaster, but the sin is a taskmaster, I should say, that pushes us in and causes us to see the end of ourselves. So in this, as we study the whole armor of God, realizing that if we don't put it on, there will be anguish and there will be distance from Christ, our Savior, our Commander. But the Bible's not saying are you with me still, that there are just two categories of Christians, those who are often defeated and those who are often victorious. We like to do the category thing. The truth is, is that this is a sanctification passage. It's about us growing in God. It's about the process of us learning how to put the armor of God on, how to use it, how to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. It's not as though a soldier arrives, and then at a certain point, there's just a switch that flips, and he all of a sudden becomes ultimately prepared. It's a lifelong process of learning and of growing, and that's what the Bible is teaching us here. How to use your armor, the more you know God, the closer you get to him, the more you know of the enemy's schemes, you'll either be shrinking because you're depending on your own strength, or you'll be growing because you're depending upon the strength of the Lord. How do we do that? By putting on the armor that he describes here for us. Every one of us needs the instruction and the application when it comes to these armor areas. It's an understatement to say that none of us are perfect. None of us have arrived at some kind of pinnacle and understanding of state, Satan's strategies. This is preparedness. At the heart of learning about the whole armor of God is that the Lord is the one that wins the battle for us. Amen. And maybe you just put on the helmet of salvation. Maybe it wasn't that long ago, and, right, and you're feeling kind of like a bobblehead right now, like, oh, this is a lot to understand. I, I have the helmet of salvation, and still you're a soldier nonetheless. Or maybe you're seasoned in battle. And at one time or the other, you've put on all this armor, and you've used this armor. Maybe you've wielded the sword with great skill, but now you're in a place where it stays in its scabbard way too often. Today is the day to pick it back up and to use it for the glory of God to get back out on the front lines. I'm convicted when I, I read this that I, I want to be a soldier that's victorious. I want to be a Christian, yes, but I want to be a victorious Christian, not an unprepared, fearful soldier. This victory is for this life right now. 
Praise the Lord for our eternal life. I'm not lessening the gift of eternal life from the Lord. But I pointed out in the last session, I'm not going to be running around with a helmet and a breastplate on and a sword in heaven. I won't have need for those then. Here on this earth, we deal with our flesh. We deal with the fiery darts of the devil. And so this is for us to have victory today, for you to be a victorious Christian, for you to be strong in the Lord. We sang the last song perfectly fits. We don't need anything else but the Lord. We need him. He's given us the equipment. Ephesians 6.10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. First question was, are you a victorious Christian? Second question is, have you faced the facts about the devil? There are some truths in the word of God that we must accept if we're going to live a victorious Christian life, and they're in regards to Satan. First of all, he exists. Second of all, according to the word here, he has legions of demons doing his bidding. Next, he is strong and strategic. Have you faced the facts about the devil? And we're going to spend some time here. This verse 12 has a list in it, doesn't it? It's got the principalities, the powers, the rulers of darkness, the spiritual hosts. This is describing demons those fallen angels that left heaven to follow Satan. Now, some say that this is describing a kind of ranking system when it comes to evil spirits. I don't see that. It could be possible. In the original language, I see here that Paul is in different terms, various terms, describing Satan's demons. Think about this. Satan is not omnipresent. He can only be one place at one time. So he needs those evil spirits. He needs those demons to be here and there doing his work. They're his spies spreading his lies. They are the ones who are his eyes and his ears so that he can launch strategic attacks, so that he can put forth his schemes. There's an unseen realm. All of your life is spiritual. But there's an unseen realm, and Satan is there with his demons to do his bidding. Have you faced the facts about the devil? First of all, the devil existing in the first place. And I back up to this, and I start with the word of God. If you know that the word of God is accurate, then that means it's accurate in regards to what it says about Satan. And dozens of times in the scripture, it speaks of Satan. Isaiah 14 describes Satan's origins as an angel in heaven. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. 
yet you have been brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. I believe what the Bible says about the reality of Satan. I also submit this to you. Think of the deep corruption in this world. Think of how perverted, think of how twisted, think of the agenda to wickedness, to evil. Now, I know that, that you and I are selfish, and I know that we deal with the flesh, and I know that there's a lot of evil that dwells in us apart from Satan. But you look at the depravity of the world and the avalanche of wickedness, and it points to an orchestrator. It points to a mastermind in evil. It's not just accidental when we see the agenda of evil. We see the methodical moving forward of spiritual darkness. That is the devil's work. I hope that you're willing to accept the reality of what the word of God says about Satan's existence. But if you don't, or even if you do, I submit to you, look at the corruption of this world. Look at the perversity. It blows our minds. How is this happening? Is it that the people put together in their efforts are just this evil? Or is there someone else who is moving forward an agenda of destruction on this planet? It's clear to me through the evidence around us that Satan is having his way with many people. There, there are a lot of different angles. He entraps the mind and the heart. Think about this tactic of Satan to convince some that he does not exist. It's one of the most successful tactics that Satan uses. Because if somebody believes that Satan doesn't exist, they'll have their guard down, won't they? What's the best case scenario if you're a thief? No dogs, no alarms, no defense, nobody's home. There, nobody's coming. There are no thieves. I don't really believe that's going to happen to me. What's the best case scenario if you're a killer, if you're a murderer? Well, the person's going to be unaware. They're not going to have any defense. So Satan has fronted this twisted idea that he doesn't exist, and he's happy to have many believe that that's the case. And therefore, the guard goes down, and he can have free reign to steal, kill, and destroy. Think about this also. Why else is the I don't exist such a great tactic? Well, if Satan doesn't exist, then that means he doesn't bombard us with temptation. That means that all of the stuff in my mind and in your mind, could you think it possibly came from you? That's a pretty depressing thought to consider. I mean, we have wayward minds, but if Satan doesn't exist, that means Satan doesn't tempt us. That means that all of our thoughts could quite possibly, if he doesn't exist, just be from how sinister and how wicked we are. You know it's true. I know it's true. If the people around you knew all of your thoughts, they would be appalled. If you knew all of my thoughts, you know you'd be appalled. To think that all of that is all of those things that we're bombarded with are simply our imaginations, simply our flesh. Now, some of them are, but to know that the devil is doing that. That's a depressing thought. The devil's not real. How about all these treacherous thoughts, the origins of them? Are they all from me? No, Satan is real, and he is a tempter. He is one who tempts. Or there could be this mentality when it comes to Satan. If you don't believe in the devil, 
but you do believe in God, are you saying, well, this struggle must come from him? I believe in God, but I don't, I don't believe in the devil. It's like those who believe in heaven, but say they don't believe in hell. The struggle must be from God. Are you going to seek God's help if you think the trouble came from him? Not at all. You're not going to seek help in God. If you don't see that there's spiritual darkness, you won't desire spiritual light. This idea that the struggle must be from God is totally against his nature. The word of God says in the book of James that God cannot be tempted with evil, nor does he tempt any man. So when we're tempted and drawn away, that's the devil using our evil desires to get us way off track. Have you faced the facts about the devil? We need to face those facts that are right here in the Bible so that we can live victorious Christian lives. There's also an idea that Satan does exist, but he's somehow an unmotivated couch potato. Do you know losers like that? They're, they're definitely wicked, but they just don't have enough gumption to really get up and do anything. And there are those that they picture Satan to be like that. He just isn't that ferocious. He's really bad, but he's basically a slob. No, he's a very active accuser. He is busy doing what's bad. He's an expert at evil. Think of the temptation of Jesus. That took a lot of nerve to tempt the Son of God. You don't think he's gutsy enough to tempt you? The devil is not a disconnected, unconcerned, distracted being. He is a focused being, and he is formidable. It's this take of, of deism turned on to the devil. Deism says, God's real, but he doesn't care. He's not involved in my life. Some people think that about Satan. Well, Satan's there, but he doesn't pay attention to me that much. He doesn't care about my thoughts and about my speech and about my life. He doesn't care about my direction. He's just off doing something on his own. I consider what it says in the book of Job at the very beginning, or first chapter, Job chapter 1, verse 7. And the Lord said to Satan, where do you come from? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. There we get the activity of the devil. I'm going all around the world. I'm looking around. I'm roaming He's that lion. I did see some lazy lions at the zoo one time. And it was, it was the male. You know, he's just sitting there, and they're feeding him, and he's up on the top of there, right? And it seems to me that the, most of the hunting is done by, by the female lion. So there are some lazy lions, right? Satan's not one of those. He is active, very effective, and what did it tell us here in these verses that we read? It says that he fires darts. What's worse than an arrow? What's worse than a dart? Well, a dart that's on fire. An arrow that's on fire. That's the way Satan works. His dart finds the target, and the intention is to instigate something a lot bigger than that original wound. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hope that I can stick it to them somehow, but then I want this to consume them, and I'm going to feed this temptation. After I submit the temptation, I'm going to feed it. That's the picture of the fiery dart that's mentioned here in the Word of God. The devil instigates 
And then he gives the next crooked conclusion. And his hope is that he can burn down your whole life. Have you faced the facts about the devil? Let's do a little bit more on this point. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, verse 13, that you may be able to, to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. I point out here that the devil uses the evil day, and we sent, spent the last session covering a lot of verse 13, but right now we're just pulling out the evil day. Satan uses the fact that he can get many people to follow his lies. He gets more and more to follow his lies. The majority following. Then 60%, then 70%, then 80%. Soon there's this sinful society that we currently see. And the excuses for sin are pre-written, aren't they? They're predetermined. The Bible calls him, and we'll go back there in a second, the prince of of the power of the air. What's that mean? It means there's an atmosphere on the earth, there's, a, there's this attitude among people, and Satan is the prince of that, the prevailing winds to push people one way or the other, the prince of the power of the air. He has a whole unbelieving, God-hating system in place. That is what the evil day means. Go back in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2, very beginning of the chapter. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, 2 now. In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. Yes, Satan is the prince, but Jesus is the king. Yes, Satan is controlling the atmosphere of the world. But Jesus is more than an atmosphere. Jesus is the solid rock where you can build your life. Yes, this is the evil day, but it's also the day that the Lord has made because he has loved you with his great love. Do you see right here, since we turn there to the beginning of chapter two, yes, the devil had us in his clutches, but look at the great love of God towards you to free you from your trespasses and your sins. That's what I see that we do have this formidable enemy who desires to exploit our flesh, to light us on fire with his darts, who is very tactical. But the Lord Jesus at the cross defeated the devil. And we're going to start putting on that armor as we study. Today, if you are down and the devil is having his way with you, repent. Turn to Jesus he will free you. He'll forgive you. Now, does that mean the struggle is going to be over? Does that mean you're not going to fight anymore? That you're not going to deal with the flesh or temptation? No, but it means the victory has already been won on your behalf. That is the confidence that I want to take into this. Not that I'm freaking out about the devil, but that I face the facts about who he is and what he does. 
but I stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not in my own strength, but being strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. This invitation to come and to put on the armor, the helmet of salvation, is the only way anybody can win. Don't leave this place thinking it's about getting dressed up, because if you're not a soldier, you can put on all the armor you want, and it won't do you a bit of good. Confess Jesus as Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. Come with, come with us, follow him. Verse 14 says, Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Stand, therefore. If we don't, this chapter talks a lot about standing, which we covered in the last session, but I'm going to remind you, if we don't know who to face off against, if we don't know what our flesh is, and if we don't understand how devious Satan is, we can't take a stand, because who are, who are we standing against? Here we're told to take a stand against Satan, against the evil, against the temptation. And I ask you the third question now, are you putting on the belt of truth? Because it says, having girded your waist with truth. A Roman soldier's belt wasn't just to look cute. A lot of times we wear belts, maybe our pants are sagging a little bit, and we think this would be the smart thing to do, or maybe we think it makes our outfit that much better. But a Roman soldier didn't wear a belt for that reason. His belt held together all of his armor. If he didn't have his belt, everything came unraveled. It wasn't just for looks. There were these weighted tassels you've seen him before hanging from his belt to protect from those low blows. He had his scabbard, his sheath that hung from his belt. Not all of them were exactly the same, but that was a heavy piece of armor protecting him and carrying his weaponry. It's hard for us today because, once again, hand-to-hand combat is something that most of us don't do very often. We don't go out on most days and think that's what our life is going to be, but there are those that do. Have you ever picked up a police officer's belt before? I remember picking that up. They've got all kinds of things on that belt. Their gun, the, the extra magazines, their, their taser, sometimes pepper spray, handcuffs, their radio. It's just, it's full. It's weighted down. The belt is so full that Nick was sharing with me. Now that they got like wearing something to hold it up on their shoulders because it's like pulling them down so much on their backs and now their shoulders are pulling that. That belt holds everything together. It's got so much on it that they need to accomplish this task of protecting themselves and protecting others. That belt of truth is what the word is likening us to as we put it on. The truth, it's called the belt of truth, or being girded about our waist with truth, it holds our defense together. It holds our offense together. Listen to this. As soon as you start to believe that the truth is a lie, or that the lie is truth, everything comes unraveled, doesn't it? Everything comes unraveled. Jesus reasoned with Pontius Pilate about the truth before he went to the cross to pay for your sins. He stood there and spoke with the judge. Really, he's the judge, but Pilate thought he was. And he reasoned with him about truth. 
And Pontius Pilate asked a very sad and sarcastic question. He said, what is truth? You see, he was a worldly judge who didn't have a sense of what was a lie and what was true. His mind had been deluded, and that caused him to sentence Jesus, the Holy Lamb of God, to crucifixion. Look how far off he got, because he didn't have a truth foundation. He didn't have a basis for truth. Isn't that the heart of what our world is dealing with today? What is truth? What's really right? What's really wrong? How will we define that? Everybody has a different definition. God tells us truth. We don't always understand it. Think about Satan as he tempted Eve in the Garden of Eden. What did he say to her? Well, first of all, she said to him, God told me that if I eat of the fruit that I'll surely die. But then what did he do? What did Satan do? He got her to question the truth that God had delivered to her, to get her to stumble, to get her to sin, didn't he? And he gave her a partial truth. That's the way the devil is. What partial truth did he give to her? He said, if you eat this fruit, you won't surely die. You'll be like God. Well, it's true that she would then have an awareness of right and wrong, so he gave her a little bit of truth, but he undermined the truth and tried to get her mixed up, and he was successful. This should not be the case for you, soldier. Gird yourself with the belt of truth. Put it around you. Let it hold you together. Let it define who you are, because God has handed us that truth through his word. Jesus says this in John 8, 32, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free or set you free. The Roman soldier had that belt holding his armor together, but listen to this. The belt was also a badge that showed the soldier's position. It proved that he was a soldier. It set him apart from civilians. It was a mark of identity. So this is the case with us. As you are bound with that belt of truth, it shows who you belong to. It shows who you serve. Today, officers, you know, military or law enforcement, a lot of times they've got something up here, their badge or their rank or whatever. But for a Roman soldier, down on his belt, showed that that's proof right there that he really does serve Rome, that he really has been called into service, that he really is prepared to fight and to protect. That's the meaning of the belt. It has a function and it has a meaning, setting us apart. You have a position in Christ. Jesus bought you that position with his blood. You don't have your own identity. You are a child of God. You've traded in everything that you dreamed of for everything that he has for you. He is your identity. When you put on that belt of truth, you're reminding yourself of your true position in Christ. What else is happening when you put on the belt of truth? You're putting on Jesus. Let me remind you from Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a put on passage. And we're putting on Jesus when we put on truth. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth. Jesus is the truth, I am the life, he says. So we're putting on Jesus 
We're making our identity clear. We belong to him. We're putting on his truth. And we're letting that truth hold us together and equip us against Satan's attacks. Are you putting on the belt of truth? Has your mind and your heart started to waver when it comes to the truth that God has delivered to us in his word? Have we started to come up with exceptions to that? Or say, there's a lot of this that I like, but there's some of it I don't like. I'll accept the truths that I like, or I'll accept the truths that I can completely understand. Now, I admit the vast majority of God's truth is very reasonable and understandable, but there'll be those times when we're not figuring it out, and we say, I am going to put on the belt of truth. I need it. I'll fall prey to the devil every time if I don't have it. It's like that officer who just runs out there. He doesn't have his gun because he doesn't have his belt. He doesn't have his ammo. He doesn't have his taser. He doesn't have a way to communicate. He doesn't have his radio. He doesn't have his handcuffs. Is he wearing the whole armor? Not even close. He can't do without it. Can't do without his belt. Or as Nick pointed out, if, if it's her belt, if she's got too skinny of a waist, like where do you put all that stuff? It's true. He's like, there's not room, right? She needs... Gain some weight. Get a dog to carry. Well, I'm just saying, they got to have all that stuff, some reachable. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. That's the middle of verse 14. Last question. Are you putting on the breastplate of righteousness? What did the breastplate do for the soldier? It protected their neck right, up to here, but protected their heart and their lungs, those vital areas as arrows would fly and as swords were being thrust. It was the last line of defense, that breastplate of righteousness. Think about the tactics of Satan. One of the things that the Bible calls Satan is the accuser of the brethren, That means that he throws at you and me lies. He accuses us, but sometimes he throws at us truth about us. Does the devil do that to you? Look at you. Look at your heart. Look at your thoughts. Look at your actions. Look what you're doing. And as he accuses, I don't have an answer. Like, can, I don't have an answer in and of myself. Can I say, actually, I'm pretty good. Actually, I, I don't have thoughts like that. Actually, I don't have motives like that. Actually, I didn't say that. No, he accuses, and some of his accusations are false, but some of his accusations are true about us. So what are we to do? It's like we're dead in the water. The accuser of the brethren comes out, Satan comes out, and what does he do? He goes for the heart. He goes for the vitals. He knows right where to hit, to, to destroy. I'm going to go for your heart. I'm going to go for the throat. And I'm going to remind you of who you are, who you've been, how you live. And in our own defense, we have nothing to offer. If we just say, no, I want to come before you and try to prove. He's, he's this, in this case, just us against him. He's the lawyer that can't be defeated. I don't have an answer for him if it's just me and the devil. But I read this verse. 
There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So when the devil throws those kind of accusations at me, what can I really say? Am I just going to be appalled by my own sin and say I'm guilty? How can I defend myself? Even the Lord has told me that my heart is deceitfully wicked. Here's what my answer ought to be. Here is what your answer ought to be. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. My answer should be, your answer should be, I'm wearing the righteousness of Jesus. You're coming after my heart. You're coming after my vitals. You're coming to kill me. It's not about my righteousness. I stand in the righteousness of Jesus. What is it called? The breastplate of righteousness. I submit to you that that's not your own righteousness. That that's the righteousness of Jesus. That's his righteousness imputed to you. You and I have the privilege of wearing his purity. And when the devil comes with his fiery darts, that breastplate of righteousness deflects every one of those fiery arrows. For we know that we're sinners, but we've put on the righteousness of Jesus. Therefore, we're clean and we're protected. Are you letting the righteousness of Jesus protect your heart from those arrows? Yes, there are the lies of Satan decided to focus on the truths of Satan, which can be very paralyzing, can't they? They leave us with no answer but God coming to us, meeting us where we are, and giving us his righteousness in place of our filth, his purity in, in place of all of our perversion and our waywardness. He is what makes you pure. He protects you, and praise him for that. I consider this belt of truth. I consider this breastplate of righteousness. And even as we're only one-third of the way into the elements of the armor, how could I do without either one of those? It's not that the word of God accidentally says, put on the whole armor. It's telling you and me, I need every piece of this. If I don't have it, I will be greatly damaged. I will be separated. I'll, there'll be distance between me and God because I'll be entrenched in sin instead of abandoning it and running to the Savior. That belts that breastplate. This morning, put it on if you don't already have it on so that you can quench those fiery darts of the devil. Don't let a day go by where you're not wearing it. I'm so guilty of this where I, I'm not immersing myself in the truth enough, where I'm not coming back to my standing and my righteousness in the Lord, and I'm still trying to strive, and therefore the devil gets me into condemnation instead of conviction. Gary's going to lead us in some songs about battle and some songs about victory, and please sing them from your heart to God. I, a lot of times, don't know how to pray. And I know that it's good to listen to the voice of the Lord. But when I want to pour out my heart to him, 
I want him to hear me. Sometimes the answer to that is a song, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, because the songs that we worship him with say so much about where we should be and who he is. Let those songs be your prayers every day, all day long. Let that righteousness and that truth wash over you. Jesus, we need strength. And that might, that strength is in you alone. Thank you for giving me, down to the detail, everything that I need, Lord. Thank you for being our sufficiency. The portion that we need is, is in you. You are our portion. I pray that you would make us practical in our spiritual lives, Lord. It, they're not separate, and I know they're not separate. Help, make us diligent, Lord, not just in the things that can be measured by money or, or fitness or a time clock or accomplishments. Help us to be disciplined to do the things that protect our whole lives. We come to you in awe of your grace, thanking you for being a keeping God, for being the God who, who says, come, come to me if you're weak and you're heavy laden. If you know you're weak, if you've realized you're weak, come to me and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn of me and just knowing that your yoke is easy and your burden is light, Lord, it's true. In your strength, life is, is so different. The conquering is, is so amazing. And I pray that every person that's tasted of that victory would be there again today for whatever they're faced with. Lord, we, we pray that we would not live in ignorance when it comes to Satan, but that we would be ready, prepared, for your service. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen.